How we doing? Jesus. I was glad when they said, let us go up into the house of the Lord. I'm glad to be here this morning. Glad to have offered up intercessory prayer for the needs of the body. I'm glad to be able to offer the sacrifice of my lips to praise you, to give thanks to you in the sanctuary. I'm glad to open scripture and see that you come in the volume of the book that it speaks of you. I'm glad to go to the table and be reminded of your great work on my behalf. I'm glad to have fellowship with the saints, have conversations to hear you speak through others, that there's wisdom in the multitude of counsel. I'm glad to be here. I pray that you and your name is always glorified here, that you are welcome here in your presence is fullness of joy. I pray for the kids and the kids' wing. May they experience joy. I, for, it, for any of us that have come in here weary and heavy laden, I pray that the joy of the Lord would be our strength today, sending us back out courageous, inspired, full of you. So speak. May we listen. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Anyone struggle making decisions? Has it gotten more difficult today? Just try to order shoelaces off of Amazon. Right, you'll have 10,372 choices. And if you're at all OCD, you gotta look at them all. Fear of missing out. You got Amazon's choice, you've got the highest rated, you've got the best, you've got the strongest, you've got the cheapest, you've got the longest lasting, right? It goes on and on and on. And that's just a trivial decision. Not important, not life-changing, and yet, ah, uh, it can be hard. How about really, really big decisions? Struggle? People say that the main struggles that we have when it comes to important decisions are either, number one, it's too big and we're overwhelmed by it. Number two, it's too far away so we're like, kick the can down the road. Or it's too hard and we just don't wanna do it. So we don't make decisions, right? So certain counselors, when they have a client that is struggling making good decisions, they'll help them, here's how they help them. So they're making a bad decision about life. They're smoking or they're drinking or they're addicted to something or they're eating Big Macs and drinking Cokes, whatever it is, and they won't stop. What they'll do now with them is this. They'll take their picture and they'll put it in an aging app and then add in smoking or drinking or whatever, eating this kind of food, and then they'll show them, this is what you're gonna look like in 10 years. 
And they have four times more success if they'll actually show you your future, right? So I put a picture in an aging app. Here it is. Yeah. I put in preaching. What happens if I keep preaching? That's what's going to happen to me. <laughs> I love the stash, though. Like, yeah, that's a nice touch. I feel sorry for my wife. <laughs> sorry, sweetie. Right? So decisions are hard. And then we up at a level as believers because most of us know that God has a mission for us that there are good works that have been prepared in advance for us to walk in. And for most of us, we want to know God's will for our life. We want to know what we're called to do. We want to know the impact we're supposed to have on our community. So we have this extra like pressure on us. And so we hear things and we're, we're watching things and we keep asking like, God, do you want me to be involved in this? This is part of my mission, part of the good works, right? You ever had that? So I always ask two questions when there's something. Number one question, when there's some kind of issue or problem, and I'm wondering, God, do you want me to be involved? The first question I ask is this, is this something God wants done? Is this a kingdom issue or just something else? Because there are lots of ideas that are good things, but they're not necessarily a God thing, right? I wanna see all the cats spayed in Grant's Pass. Matt, can we use the church to do that? No, you can't. Probably not a God thing. Maybe a good thing. Not a God thing. Or then we just attach for Jesus to anything and kind of make it like it's spiritual. Skydiving for Jesus. If you fail, you'll meet him. <laughs> Base jumping for Jesus, same thing, right? Bunko for Jesus, whatever it is. If you just add for Jesus, then somehow it becomes a important thing for God. So number one question is, I just have to pray and ask like, is this something God actually wants done? And then my second question is, am I called and able to do this thing? So those are right away where I start, right? Well, that second part can be difficult. Am I called to this? Am I able to do this? We have in Nehemiah, one of the most brilliant chapters on kind of knowing your right calling because we got this great leader who hears about a massive problem. It's an incredible problem. The wall of Jerusalem, God's city is broken down. The gates are burned up. The people are in great trouble and shame. And Nehemiah could have easily said, hey, too big for me. I'm just one dude, 850 miles away. Too big for me, too far away. I, literally, it's too far away. It's too hard. That's too hard of a job. One man can't do that. He could have done all that, but he doesn't. Instead, you see like a series of things, events, and Nehemiah that just funnel him down to show you are the one for this calling. You are the one to tackle this issue. So we can learn from Nehemiah like to know, man, what's my right calling? What does God have for me? So let's jump in. I'll back up. We did the first three verses last Sunday, but let, for context, we'll back up, read them again. So Nehemiah chapter one. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came 
with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Watch his response to this, this massive issue. Number one, he has the right physical response. He hears this bad news about God's city, Jerusalem, wall broken down, the gate is burned, the people are in great trouble and shame. And it says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down. His knees get weak. Devastating news that we take personally, that affects us, will have an involuntary bodily response. Do you know that? I'm not just talking about general bad news, like, hey, Facebook is laying people off. Oh, that's terrible. Maybe. The stock market fell 500. Oh, okay, that's not good. All right, we've got too much snow in the mountains. There's gonna be an avalanche or there's gonna be, oh, oh no. There's a drought, oh no. There's, right? Just, you, you don't respond to it. But when it's really personal, when it really gets you, man, your body involuntarily responds to it. Science has found when it's devastating news to you personally, your blood pressure actually drops and that's why you get weak in the knees. That's why people faint with bad news. So what happens to Nehemiah right here is he hears about God's city and about God's people and he gets weak in the knees and he has to sit down. Man, when something hits you like that, pay attention. That could be God calling you that could be God saying, this is important for you. Listen, research it, study, find out. Number one, he has the right physical response. Number two, he has the right emotional response. So Nehemiah, he says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. He's got weak knees and wet eyes. He starts to cry. Now, if you don't know Nehemiah, because we're just beginning his story, you may not know this about him, but what you're gonna discover about Nehemiah is he is USDA certified stallion. He is diamond, he is steel, he is a man's man, he is a stud. You will not outwork, you will not outthink, you will not outbrave Nehemiah and he cries. He has an emotional response. I talk to men sometime, and usually it's about marriage or kids or something, and they'll tell me, man, I'm just not an emotional guy. And I always wanna say, really? Let's say tomorrow morning, you get up and you're headed to work and you go out to your car and you see wires from your brand new stereo going out your broken window. You emotional? Or you're like, apparently. I'm gonna be cold on the way to work and not listen to the radio. 
Is that how you respond? And you get to work and you find all your stuff out on the sidewalk with a pink slip. Are you like, well, apparently I've got time to fix my stereo today, <laughs> right? And then you check your 401k because you don't have any money coming in and it's been hacked and it's at zero. Are you like, apparently I'm gonna need to get a job really quick here. No, you get emotional, right? I think sometimes we just numb our emotions in things that we don't wanna deal with. That's really what it is. But emotions are a gift from God, right? And I'd love to be able to say this to us. I'd love to be able to say, hey, track your tears. If you wanna know what God's calling you to do, track your tears. But I don't think I can say that today in America because I think most of what gets us, most of what causes us to cry is not God's name. It's not God's people. It's me. I didn't get something I wanted. I didn't get the accolades I wanted. I didn't get the phone call I wanted. I didn't get the job I wanted. People didn't make much of me. I didn't get the likes I wanted, right? We cry because it's us. Not that God's name is trampled and God's people are in great shame, but me, it's about me. I call them selfish tears. We got a lot of them. That the main lens by which most people look at the world today is a mirror. That's what we look. And when you do that, man, it creates a hell and a misery. So, We've got to be careful of this, right? We don't have to do that. We don't have to be obsessed by self anymore. You know why? We don't have to be obsessed and make people realize how much we matter and how important we are and how we deserve this and how we've earned this. And we don't have to do that. Do you know why? Because we matter to Jesus. That's the soul of Christianity. That's what gives you strength and power. We don't have to worry about, hey, that'd be nice, but I'm not banking on that. That'd be great, but it doesn't make a difference because I matter to the king of the universe. So Nehemiah here, he cries not selfish tears. He cries because God's city, where God puts his name, is in ruin and God's people are hurting. What drives you to your knees? As you watch the news, as you read books, as you drive around our city, what drives you to your knees and causes you to cry? What puts a lump in your throat today? What issue is it? Drug addiction? Exploitation of women? Children? Gossip? Violence? Churches that have left the straight and narrow and they've embraced the wide and easy way? Unaffordable housing? parks that are overrun, human trafficking, the explosion of depression in teenage girls and the suicide that goes along with it, right? Foster care, the unsaved, bullying, pornography, the lost boys now. You know, boys are in a crisis right now. Every metric, boys are falling behind at a rate never seen before. I just bought the book. I started, it's called The Boy Crisis. It's, it's just, I'm like, oh my goodness. It's worse than I thought. And I really read a lot about this. You know why? Because I got three daughters that I want minimally to marry a boy that I don't want to kill. <laughs> right? And I'm just like, where are they going to be at? Golly. I'm like, what gets you? Is it a fish farm in Uganda? Is it mosquitoes nets in the Makuru slums? Is it orphans down in Mexico? What gets you? What puts a lump in your throat? Is it the alignment, I just call it a satanic trinity now, of our government, technology, and entertainers that have just aligned 
to kill babies. Like it's nuts to me. Like how in the world did this happen? Right, you've got the State of the Union. We're supposed to be talking about our country where the State of the Union is, hey, Congress needs to restore the right for women to kill babies. Really? That's what the State of the Union? Huh. Our own state here, we have pledged millions of dollars to fly people here, put them up in hotels, pay for their abortions. You and I, our tax dollars do that. Like really, right? Entertainers, right? Taylor Swift, America's sweetheart, unless you're the unborn, right? Perhaps you saw this, right? Taylor Swift, I'm a Christian. And people with real Christian values support abortion. They do? Really? Here's what is so, gonna be so ironic to me, right? I say this, and the feedback and the emails and the conversations I'll have on this right here will be, Matt, why did you mention Taylor Swift? You don't have to talk about Taylor Swift. It won't be the 50 plus million babies that have died. It'll be, why did you have to take, tell about Taylor Swift? Because she put her name out there. That's why. But the outrage will not be the babies that are dying. The outrage will be, I had the audacity to tell what she actually believes. That will be the audacity. But the church has stood with life for 2,000 years. From the time of conception until the time you're called home. Doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter your uh, male, female, doesn't matter anything, doesn't matter rich, poor, educated, you have value because the Bible says you are an image bearer of God and you're worthy of dignity and protection as an image bearer of God. What puts a lump in your throat? Nehemiah here, Nehemiah could have walked away from this. It's too big for me. It's too far away. It's 850 miles away. I'm over here. I, I can't do it. It's too hard. He could have ignored and never asked the question, this guy returning, like, man, I don't even want to know. <laughs> I'm not going to ask him the question. You ever do that? Because I don't really want to know. Because then I might have to do something about it. So I'm not even going to ask. He could have just ignored, right? Life is good for him. He lives in the citadel, right? This is the resort town of the most powerful empire on earth. He lives in Maui, Right? He gets to eat the king's food and drink the king's wine. He's taking selfies with Artaxerxes. Yo, hashtag, blessed life, man, God is good. He could have prayed, God, thank you so much that I am here and you have blessed me so much and not over there in Jerusalem like those people. Man, that would be tough. He could have done all that. But he doesn't. He let what he heard into his heart. He let that pain and his tears direct his path. Now, he had the right physical response. He's got the right emotional response. He's got the right spirit. It says, I mourned and wept for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. 12 different times in the book of Nehemiah, we'll just see this. There's 13 chapters, 12 times. Nehemiah just, in the midst of things, he just prays. When your heart breaks, what do you do? Do you make a social media post about it? Hey, check this, this breaks my heart. Do you numb it with Netflix? Do you Google ideas about it? What is it? Nehemiah has this 
reflex. I call it instinctive prayer. The moment something hits him, instinctively, he just prays. 12 times, just, oh, I gotta pray about this. It's his first option. Is it our first option? Man, I fail at this. Two weeks ago, I'm in my office and I get a phone call patched through and I answer the phone and this man just tells me, hey, I'm thinking about killing myself right now. Right, so that takes you by, okay, everything else, all right, that'll put a lump in your throat. So I just talk to the guy, we share, I say, hey, let's set up an appointment, let's talk. And the whole time I'm talking to him, I'm like, I'm driving over to this guy's house. When I get up this phone, I'm driving over to his house, right? So hang up the phone, and this is 2023. You can find anyone's address, right? So I Google him, I Google his name, I cannot find his address. So then I start calling the people that I know that know him and I can't get a hold of anybody and I can't get a hold of him. So I just walked out of my office right there and just walked out here. I'm like, oh no, dang. And I'm standing there just thinking, man, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And there's only a few times that you just really feel God's like talking to you. And it was like the spirit said, you can pray. I went, oh, right. And I had just been studying Nehemiah. I'm like, I am a terrible pastor, goodness, right? Why is it that we're like, well, you know, I guess all we can do is pray. How do you think God feels about that statement? All we can do is ask God, man, that's a bummer. Like, dad, who would like that? Your son's like, well, you know, I'm out of options. I guess I could ask my dad, but he's a moron, so why would I ask him? Like, it's kind of like that. Like, what are we doing? Nehemiah, it's like an instinct with him. And you pray what you believe about God. Do you know that? If we believe God's job is to bless our food, then that's all we're praying. If you believe God's job is to make you happy, that's all you're praying. But if you believe God has the power to change a people and a city and a state and a nation and a world, you pray like that. You pray your theology. And history has shown the church stands strongest when she's on her knees. When people like Nehemiah instinctively, not, well, I guess all we can do, it's my first option is to pray. He's gonna plan, he's gonna be prepared, he's gonna take other steps, no doubt. But Nehemiah's first step is always, I gotta pray. I won't know what to do till I pray. I don't know how to pray. How do we pray like Nehemiah? We have the best example right here, right? Let me show you how Nehemiah prays. It's a great model of prayer. Number one thing he does is this. He prays, number one, with eyes up. Look at verse five. And I said, O Yahweh, God of heavens, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Number one is this. He begins with God. Not his inabilities, not his failures, not his lacks, not his fears, not his whatever. He begins, number one, with his eyes up. And he says, God, you are an awesome God. What's awesome today? It's the Lego movie, right? Everything is awesome. That's an awesome burger. Those are awesome shoes. That's an awesome car. You have an awesome house. That was an awesome song. This is an awesome message, right? Because everything is awesome, guess what? Nothing's awesome. 
There's only one thing that's awesome, only one thing, and it's God. Nehemiah, the very first thing is he gets his eyes up and says, God, you're awesome. I'm gonna warn you about something I think that is creeping into the church and I see it more and more and more. It's this silly idea that we start needing to know all about us. I call it navel-gazing Christianity. You know, where am I at? How am I feeling? I'm this way right now. I'm that way right now. And for a while, people would ask me this, hey, Matt, what's your number? I'd be like, I don't have a phone. No, I mean, what's your Enneagram number? I'm number two. I'm like, what are you talking about? An Enneagram. How is that biblical? How is that Christ-like? What are you? The Bible says deny yourself, not figure yourself out. It says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. What's my number? What's my letter? All that stuff is M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. Forget about it. You know what my number is? It's Jesus. I need more of him. I need to get my eyes off myself and I need to get them on Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. So this naval, Nehemiah never does this. Very first thing he does in prayer is not where am I at? How am I feeling about this? It's, I need to get my eyes up. I need to get them onto Jesus. I need to get them on him. And I forget about my inabilities. I forget about my paralysis. I forget about my fears because I'm reminded God sits on the throne. God sits on the throne and nothing is too hard from him. And it's eyes up, number one. Number two, heart is soft. Look at verse six. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel that we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant. Moses, heart is soft. You know where revival starts? It doesn't start out there. It starts right here. That's where revival starts. That's where rebuilding starts. That's where renewing starts. It starts right here. And so what Nehemiah does is he first just talks nationally. Man, there's, we got some national sin, but then he doesn't leave it there. He goes, and I've got personal sin. Even I and my house have sinned. Not finger pointing. You guys are really bad out there. And what's wrong with all you guys? He turns to himself and says, I've sinned and my house have sinned, right? Not the hypocrite pointing out the sins in other people, but starting with his own heart. Where am I at? What sins have I done? One of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's Matthew 26, 22. And the disciples, you know them, they're a mixed bag. Sometimes they do great. But a lot of times they are colossal failures, which should encourage all of us because we fit in then. Like, wow, okay, I could be a disciple. Wow, right? Well, they get it right once. It's Matthew 26, 22. Jesus says, hey, tonight, one of you is gonna betray me. Worst sin ever. And so the 12 start to talk amongst themselves. What did they say? Gotta be Judas, man. That dude is sketchy. I've had my eyes on him for a long time. Gotta be Peter, guy's always putting his foot in his mouth. He's gonna do it. No, guess what they say? It said, each of them said, is it I? Could I do this? I know how I can fail. 
I know how I can trip up. I know how I can be deceived. And I'm not pointing at the other 11 here. I'm pointing at myself. Is it I? That's not natural. Our natural response is to always find someone else and play the victim. Do you know that? And it starts very early in life. I found this out with my two, young, two oldest, right? Charlie and I, when we just had Carissa, she was three. And Isabella, she was 18 months old. I had this Westphalia Vanigan, 1980. My fourth love at that point, maybe fifth love. Loved it. Had it painted white. Brand new paint job on it. Came out one Monday morning to go drive it to work. And I get there and I see on the door, someone has started to write on my door with a ballpoint pen. And they had made a C and an A and an R and an I, but the I wasn't finished because a little ball bearing had broke off and was embedded in the paint. So I'm like, huh, I don't think my wife did this. Let's go get Carissa. So I bring Carissa out and I show her that. I say, Carissa, do you know how this happened to daddy's car? How there's a C, A, R, I, and you just happen to be learning to write your name. Do you know how this happened? And she looked at me with her big blue eyes straight in my eyes. And she said, Isabella did it. <laughs> right? That's the natural response. Point at other people. It's got to be them. I'm the victim here. Not Nehemiah. Nehemiah knew something. Revival begins right here. Revival begins in my heart. You wanna change your week? In every conflict that you have this week, just the first question you ask is Matthew 26, 22. Is it I? How did I contribute to this problem? With your spouse, with your kids? When you're driving, you get cut off. You have to say, is it I? Did I do something wrong? Is my blinker not working, right? Is it I? Watch and see how much better your week is when you just start with that premise. What am I doing? How am I contributing to this? Is it I? Okay, brilliant. Eyes up, heart soft, Bible open. Look at verse eight. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Nehemiah says, God, remember. Remember this promise that you made. That if we sin, we'd be scattered. And we've seen that come to pass. We're scattered. But you also promise that if, if we change and start to keep your commands, you will gather us back to the place where you're going to keep your name, which is Jerusalem. Now, why did Nehemiah remind God of his promise? Did God forget? No. But don't we forget God's commandments? Don't we forget God's promises? Don't we forget them all the time? Like I've thought as a preacher, I have a certain style to me. And I've thought about changing my style because of something. And what happens is this, I'll preach and then 
throughout the week, I'll see people at Home Depot or Walmart or wherever it is, and then they'll say, hey, Matt, loves your sermon on Sunday. And, and I'll always ask, so know this, I'll ask you, what did you like? And normally what people say they like is, I love that story you told about Chris and Isabella. I love the story you told about how stupid you are. Well, thank you, <laughs> right? And then I'll say, what else? And that's it. Well, there's a point to my stories. And it's usually one of the promises of God. And I'm thinking, well, if we only remember the story and not the point, oh, that's not a good way to preach. I don't know if I can change now. Maybe I'm too old. But there's promises of God. And the promises that God make are the power for our walk. They power your walk. The prophet would say, my people perish for lack of knowledge. That we don't know. You know how many promises are in the Bible? 3,000 promises. How many fears do you have? How many worries do you have? If you could add them all up, how many would they be? Five, 10, 20, 30. There's 3,000 promises. I guarantee you don't have 3,000 worries or right? It's way more, an overabundance. And we live very differently than Nehemiah because for Nehemiah, it was if then. If you do this, then God will do this for you. In the New Testament, because of Jesus, we live in a different age because Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1.20. He says, all the promises. How many promises is that? 3,000. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That when you read a promise, guess what? It's yes and amen in Jesus. How brilliant is that? Nehemiah is reminding God of a promise because he needed it. Oh yeah, because you made this promise. And if we'll keep your commands, you'll regather us and you'll regroup us and you'll replant us in the city of Jerusalem. Oh yes. Pray with your Bible open. Pray the promises of God. And then lastly, he asks boldly, verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He asks boldly. Everything Nehemiah was doing here, eyes up, heart soft, Bible open, was to produce what the New Testament would call a prayer of faith. It had been refined now in humility, in scripture, in repentance. It had been refined. And now Nehemiah can ask boldly a prayer of faith. I need favor in the eyes of this man, the king, which is chapter two. He asks boldly. Do we ask boldly? I hope we do. Here's what Jesus says. This is what I shared on a Wednesday night, two Wednesday nights ago, introducing 2 Corinthians. Jesus in Luke 11 says this, that, hey, dads, you know how to give good gifts to your kids. All right, dads, don't we? Don't we wanna bless our kids? 
And the illustration I gave on Wednesday was, uh, I have a daughter that loves horses. Like from the time she was little, she has just loved horses. I do not like horses because I had one time where I had a ride on a horse and it was not fun. So ninth grade, Yosemite, head down there. We have this trail trip set up where you get on a horse and you ride like an eight mile loop. And the night before I was excited because I thought, wow, I am gonna dominate. I'm gonna be like a horse whisperer, like John Wayne Jr. Man, the trail boss would be like, you have a natural sense with horses. You're hired, man, I need you on my team. So, you know, like kids do have these dreams of what you're gonna do. Well, I get there and there's like 50 of us and we all get on a horse and we're given two rules and that's it. And the two rules are, don't let your horse stop and eat grass. And number two, don't let your horse get out of line. And they're trained horses, it's really easy to do. Well, I'm pretty sure the horse I was on is a horse from Revelation 6, a horse of the apocalypse, like a satanic beast, right? Because within about a minute, my horse had stopped, was eating grass, and I'm 5'2", 90 pounds, soaking wet as a freshman. And I'm just trying to pull up on this horse, and it's not even obeying me. I think the only reason why it started moving was the horse behind bit it, and then it took off and ran beside all the other horses, and I'm just like, blah, 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 you know, just along for the ride. So the trail boss has to rip after me. He grabs the reins and is like, son, pull back on the reins and say, whoa, you're in charge here. I'm sitting there thinking, I'm not in charge here. Satan's in charge, <laughs> right? So that's my experience with horses. Don't want them, right? We got a daughter that loves them. And I can remember to this day, this prayer she prayed. She was eight years old. We're at the table, dinner time. I said, hey, Krista, would you pray for the meal? So she starts to pray and she says this, God, I am so thankful for the black and white horse I'm going to get named Sweetie. I'm so thankful that my dad is gonna build a barn and get me that horse, amen. <laughs> Guess what she got? Three horses, right? Cause you can't have a horse by itself. It needs lots of friends, right? So we end up with three horses. And Jesus says this, if you, a dad, and you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more? your heavenly father. So Nehemiah's prayer is shaped by humility and repentance and scripture. And now he boldly asks, hey, I need favor with this man. Pray like that. Eyes up, heart soft, Bible open, boldly asking. That's a brilliant prayer. And then we get one last, how do you know if I'm called to something? Right, physical response, right, emotional response, right? Right, spiritual response, prayer and fasting. And then lastly, he's in the right position. Last phrase of verse 11. Now I was cup bearer to the king. Nehemiah is in the right position his job is to taste the wine for the king. If you're thinking, I want that job, you don't. King Artaxerxes was an evil, bad dude. He wasn't in Babylon because people wanted to kill him. He had to live in the citadel 
about 350 miles away because people were trying to kill him. And one of the ways that you try to kill a king is poison his wine. So Nehemiah is the canary in the gold mine. Hey, Nehemiah, drink this. And they'd watch him for about 30 minutes. He's still alive. Okay, the king can drink it. So that's Nehemiah's job. But because of that, he's connected. Because of that, we'll see in chapter two, he's got some coupons to spend because of his position. I love that. So Nehemiah is a politically active, praying believer in God. I am asking for thousands of people like that. We need thousands and thousands of politically active believers in Jesus Christ who are going to take their influence and spend it for the flourishing of God's people. Man, we need tons of people like that. And this book, it covers 12 years. And what we're going to see with Nehemiah is this. He spends himself on the flourishing of God's people and the glorification of God's name. And it is amazing. And each one of us, we've been placed in positions that no one else is, in a family, in a neighborhood, at a job, with influence, with capital. And the Nehemiah question that beckons us is, as we see a, a downtown space between the two, will we take our positions and our capital and our influence and will we leverage that for the flourishing of God's people and the joy of his people, right? Will we do that? Are we the kind of people that do that? Because that's what Nehemiah does. And it's beautiful and it's brilliant and it's amazing. Or will I take all that you've given to me? Right? Me and I could have kicked back in the citadel. He had it made, but he chose not to. He could have said, it's too big, it's too far, it's too hard. But he didn't, because he believed in a big God. Do we believe that same way? That's how our city changes. We're like this. I'll take it and use it. So as we go to the Lord's table, And we take these elements that Jesus says, these are to remind you of me. What do we believe about God? Are we bold proclaimers, bold askers? Because we know he's God of the heavens, that nothing is impossible for him. Are we like the John Knoxes of history who said to God, give me Scotland or I die? Are we give me Grant's Pass or I die? Give me Murphy or I die? Give me Merlin or I die? Give me Hugo or I die? Give me Sunny Valley or I die? Give me Rogue River or I die? Are people like that? Boldly proclaiming and then willing, he's gonna plan and prepare and go willing then to pay what is necessary to see that happen. I hope so. And the reason why we can do that is because the Bible says this, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. You have not because you ask not. 
right? These promises. Greater is he that's within us than he that's in the world.